Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Brooklyn Rock. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Roland Huang, who will tell us about reverse engineering. Also, we will find out how a cat lands on its feet. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up, here on Brooklyn Rock. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. Excellent, excellent. Running our campaign still for the governorship of California. You know what? Why don't we just get Arnold on, on our show? If Arnold actually switches and drops out of the race and endorses us, I think we have a clear path yeah. to the governorship. Yeah, just my fake it. I think we can fake it at least as easily as uh, Arnie can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you Okay, well, now you got to fight. Got to fight? For your right. Uh-huh. To what? To vote? Well... <laughs> to party. <laughs> I guess you could vote, too, yeah. The right to vote is very important, but in fact, the right to party is almost equally important. So yes, I think Arnold understands that. I think that is certainly one of his key issues in the race. Uh, well, one of the things, though, is that researchers for quite some time have been wondering why some people drink harder and faster than other people do. I thought it was because they had the enzyme and they could tolerate the alcohol more, so they would just chug it down, right? Uh, well, that certainly explains how people can tolerate the alcohol, but why are, do some people have a proclivity to actually drinking a lot? It just doesn't get into their blood fast enough? So these are all good explanations, but researchers are wondering if this actually has to do with something related to mood. To mood. So people who might need to compensate for feeling anxious or depressed might drink more often. Really? So uh, one of the studies that's been carried out by a group of researchers at George Washington University has looked at a particular brain chemical called serotonin. Ah, oh, serotonin. Right. My favorite. So what they've done is they've looked at this serotonin, and serotonin has been known to uh, influence a lot of things in, in addition to mood and anxiety and, and depression. So what they did is they actually looked at a couple of genes in question which are involved taking up the serotonin or actually uh, receiving the serotonin molecule. And it turns out there are two different forms of this gene, a long form and a short form. Mm-hmm. And it turns out people with a short form are more prone to anxiety and depression, and it correlates very strongly with their likelihood for drinking. Really? So if you have this short gene, you're actually going to drink a lot more. Wow. It could explain why people might have a, a natural tendency to binge drink whenever they do drink. So do scientists think that they could come up with a treatment for people who are alcoholics? Uh, they certainly think it, it might be possible. So they're, they're still looking at whether or not what the actual effects of these things are. All they've done is correlated the two genes and the behavior. I see. And, of course, some researchers are saying that it might not necessarily be the gene for alcoholism. Rather, it might just be correlated and a marker for alcoholism. Right. Anyway, in case the next time you go grab a drink, uh, make sure you know which form of the Lila you have. <laughs> and if anyone wants to know more about this, it appears in the recent edition of Science. So, have we found those weapons of mass destruction yet? I don't know. I think Saddam's hiding them in his pants. <laughs> Maybe that... we need to send in the Terminator. <laughs> the Terminator can get it all. He's, he can take care of California's uh, budget deficit, energy deficit, and find the weapons of mass destruction. Indeed. But um, officials of the U.S. and the U.K. are estimating that a lot of the governments involved in these weapons treaties are not living up to their uh, expectations. Oh, surprise. They've been surprised. saying, yeah. So, actually, it turns out that only 40 of the 151 countries that have joined this treaty has actually adopted any domestic legislation 
for uh, complying to these measures. So what are we doing about that? Not too much. There's just a lot of finger pointing going around <laughs> these days. But these days, there's finger pointing going around every day, my friend. Every day since uh, the game of time. Yeah. Was. Sort of makes you wonder why it's so slow to get rid of these weapons. Or right, they've been looking for these weapons. Is there anything new going on here? What's Not really. I guess the problem is that with the concerns about the U.S. and the U.K. leadership these days, it's hard to find people who really want to actively be involved in this. And maybe this is one of the reasons we don't have international support for uh, whatever we're doing in, in the Middle East right now. <laughs> it's, a, it's certainly a good point. Well, um, so if people want to... No more. Just go look up the Chemical Weapons Convention on the web. Well, a related story to the weapons of mass destruction uh, comes from our own homeland security. Our homeland security. Uh, homeland security, indeed. So uh, the Nas- National Labs are planning on building uh, two new uh, biodefense labs at the National Laboratories, Lawrence Livermore National Lab and uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory. Oh, cool. Yeah, so these are two of the most secure type facilities called BSL-4 and BSL-3 type laboratories. But unfortunately, there's a couple watchdog groups, uh, Nuclear Watch of New Mexico and Tri-Valley Cares of California. Ah, uh, Tri-Valley. Tri-Valley, yeah. They've asked a federal judge to halt the construction of these two new uh, labs, really? claiming apparently that the department hasn't adequately studied the environmental risks and considered whether the new labs would endanger U.S. compliance and non-proliferation treaties. Oh, yeah. serious. Yeah, so, I mean, they're afraid, apparently, that the risks of building these labs have not been adequately studied, and, of course, the U.S. has signed a bunch of treaties saying we're not going to build any kind of labs to study biological weapons. <laughs> but, you know, when has that ever stopped us before? What do you mean by study or create? <laughs> it's all for our protection. Of course. We're not of using course. them at weapons. Preemption. That's right. So anyway, but there's certainly more noise about this than ever before. And former chief of the Centers for Disease Control, Carl Johnson, has proposed that these things be done very, very carefully. And if anyone wants to know more? Oh, well, they can take a look. Uh, this is all over the news, in fact. But uh, they can either go to Nuclear Watch of New Mexico or Tri-Valley Care's websites or check out the recent edition of Science Now. Okay, Charles, can your proteins do unnatural things? They're doing unnatural things all the time. Mm. They're very, very nasty right now. <laughs> I don't want to touch your proteins, man. Don't, don't even look at my proteins. <laughs> but uh, it turns out using a computer, it's possible to modify proteins and unnaturally make them do things that they were not able to do before. Ooh, such as? Being able to make them uh, ligate to different compounds. So, for example, uh, certain markers on the surface of cells can ligate to amino acids or sugars outside of the cells, right? I see. So these are these are proteins that are on the cells. Right. Ligating, but you mean by like attaching. Attaching. And binding. Being selectively to, binding. binding. Yeah. And what they do is computationally alter the uh, DNA structure. That'll give the, the new protein structure and have that protein structure ligate to something else. For example, uh, TNT or residues of biological warfare agents. Oh, okay. So they can actually modify these proteins to see if they can then bind to TNT and then perhaps then engineer the proteins. Right. Okay. So they've actually been able to engineer these proteins that'll bind to all sorts of stuff that we've not been able oh. to uh, recognize before. I see. So it's, it's basically just like a computational modeling yes, of yes. these proteins. Yes, yes. This actually uh, represents milestone computational chemistry. Okay. That's really fascinating because uh, people have been trying to do this for quite some time. A long, long, long time. long time, yeah. big problem was trying to figure out 3D folding problems. Right. Trying to figure out the three-dimensional shape of the protein was right. always a big issue. Well, they're using a, all sorts of tools, including directed evolution. Yeah. where they can selectively change certain parts of your gene and somehow be able to figure out how that will change the protein structure and function mm-hmm. of the final protein. Right, right. And uh, this is a work carried out by a Professor Heliga at uh, Duke University and published in a recent issue of Nature. 
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Andrew Huang will be discussing reverse engineering and his book, Hacking the Xbox. So stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, reverse engineering, the not-so-gentle art of figuring out how something works by taking it apart, has been practiced by hardware-oriented geeks and tinkerers for as long as anyone can remember. It's the way Wozniak learned to build the first Apple, and it's the way many of today's young engineers are learning about hardware engineering. But while many engineers believe that reverse engineering is a protected right, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, makes unauthorized access to intellectual property illegal, including certain types of reverse engineering. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the technological and ethical issues behind reverse engineering is Dr. Andrew Huang, otherwise known as Bunny in hacker circles. Dr. Huang is the author of Hacking the Xbox, an introduction to reverse engineering. Dr. Huang, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Yeah, I'm very glad to be here. Thanks. Well, we're glad to have you here. You've written a very engaging book, uh, Hacking the Xbox, in which you talk about your adventures at reverse engineering that uh, popular gaming console. And I'm curious if you might first give us an explanation of what is reverse engineering, what does it entail, and what its purpose is. Well, I mean, re- reverse engineering is basically trying to discover how a system works by feeling around its perimeter and then opening it up and taking a look on the inside. It's sort of like solving a puzzle, taking things apart thread by thread and discovering novel and interesting things about the system. So it's actually, it's actually sort of a very entertaining and, and almost like a game in itself. The end goal of reverse engineering, so the purpose of it, it actually is, um, for many people, is personal edification and the seeking of knowledge. But in industry, it's actually a very well-accepted practice for method of learning about how people do things. It's very common for people to, for example, large companies take apart other people's chips to see the circuits on the inside 
and learn from the layout of the components, for example, to see what the competitors are doing. I see. So it's just trying to figure out what the machinery is that's involved in operating the machine there. Yeah, it's, it's find out what's behind the scenes, what's inside the box, who's the man behind the curtain pulling all the levers and stuff. Okay, okay. Fascinating thing. Your book is actually a very engaging read. Um, you know, it's not just a technical manual, since it, it does talk a lot about your own experiences as you hack the Xbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious if you could tell us a little something about your motivation and interest for this project. Well, it actually, it stems back from, I mean, I did this while I was at MIT, and uh, my uh, advisor, Dr. Tom Knight at MIT, had me thinking about computer architecture, and, and his observation is that video game consoles represent the pinnacle of, of performance per dollar. And so he would uh, get the consoles for us and have us take them apart and uh, tell us to learn what we can by uh, looking at how the construction is and the techniques they use and the parts they selected and see if we could learn anything about that in terms of building high-performance, high better computers. So, you know, originally my Xbox explorations came as maybe you could say a habit. I just take these things apart and have it. And uh, in particular about the Xbox, it, it just got more interesting as you took it apart. Most game consoles, you take it apart like, oh, there's a processor, there's a board, and there's some memory, and you read some specs, like, oh, that's pretty interesting. And then with the Xbox, once you actually started trying to look at the ROMs and see what the architecture was on the inside, you realize it's all encrypted and that they put a lot of attention into security. And security is actually another important element that we are looking at in our research at the time. And so it just sort of became a matter of, of exploration to see how far they went down the hole of security to, to try and secure the box. I see. So this is security so that you wouldn't be able to copy it or security so that it can be used for other purposes? The, the basic security maximum is just to ensure that you can only do with it what Microsoft desires you to do. I see. And that includes Microsoft desires for you not to copy and Microsoft also desires for you not to use it for anything but to run Microsoft software. Right. For, uh, for those uh, listeners technically inclined, can you tell us something about what are those specs of the Xbox and uh, its potential capabilities and how easy is it to hack? Yeah, sure. The Xbox is basically a PC. Imagine a uh, 733 megahertz Pentium 3 class PC, 64 megs of RAM and a 10 gigabyte hard drive, and a GeForce 3 class graphics rendering processor. Hmm. has four USB ports, t- 10 100 Ethernet port, and... A DVD-ROM drive that um, actually, incidentally, doesn't read CDR media very well. But, I mean, given those specs, it's a very decent machine. You know, today it's not the most amazing machine, but it's a decent machine. Mm-hmm. So once you can actually unlock it from being an Xbox, it serves any purpose that you can imagine for a machine. In particular, the Xbox is very well integrated into a sort of a home AV environment. Mm-hmm which makes it very desirable to actually run your own personal media software, play your MP3s, oh, wow. uh, share your movies and all that sort of stuff on this console. Because normally, in order to get a PC, you have to throw it next to your TV and right. add in a video out card, an audio out card, and be a bit of a pain. Right. In terms of the protections applied, it's, it's multi-level. They have basic physical security protections, like the, the media comes on a two-layer DVD-ROM drive, which makes it difficult to make a copy of because burners only do one, one layer. Mm. They also put some security sequences inside the ASICs themselves. These secure the boot parameters, and so it makes it more difficult for you to co-opt the Xbox to do something else. And they also use hashes and public key signatures all over the place up the wazoo for any disk that's presented to it, and also all the network ports are encrypted as well. Or the network connections, when you, when you establish a connection, they, they use an encryption protocol. But, but these are all security features that are somewhat easily circumvented, at least. Well, I mean, they all rely on a premise that the, that the Xbox is doing what Microsoft wants it to do. Right. And so the, mo- the minute you break that premise, all these are pretty, pretty much defeatable. Mm-hmm. 
Well, this this certainly seems like a fascinating project, but as I guess you mentioned, the whole uh, issue with uh, Microsoft and uh, there there are some legal issues behind these types of hacks. As we mentioned earlier, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act has made it legal. Um, or if you can talk a little bit about what are some of these legal issues and the responsibilities of hacking. Yeah, well, there's a lot of, I mean, I guess a lot of legal issues these days, mostly because I think the DMC is a little vague about what you can and cannot do. For example, there's a debate as to how far academics can go for reverse engineering and learning about crypto systems. Technically, we're protected, but we have to jump through a few hoops before we can do anything like that. And it also leaves the hobbyists high and dry. Do you have to be in the ivory tower to have the right to explore and learn about these things and to have your reverse engineering rights protected? So the DMCA says that you know if you break a technological measure that effectively controls a copyright, then you've broken the law. And so this adds a whole new angle to pretty much everything. Because now if you copied something, right, because you, and you broke the DMC, you have two violations. You have both the copyright violation and the copyright control violation. Mm-hmm. So the process of just hacking a box doesn't necessarily have any copyright violations traditionally per se. I mean, you know, the fact that you copied the ROM out to look at it is a copyright violation, but that's actually been protected, I think, through previous court precedent. But the fact that you had to crack the encryption to actually get to that makes it not okay again. I see. So I see. these are sort of issues all up in the air. Mm. In terms of sort of just general hacker responsibilities, I mean, I think we just all have to realize that, I mean, we all live in a capitalist society, and some people put some money in behind some of these things and they try to make some money off of it. Right. And it's just a matter of courtesy or something like that. To, I mean, to basically exercise your own good sense to not distribute freely or to go crazy about these. I mean, practice, I mean, if you just do it in the privacy of your home and you maybe you, you tell someone about it or something, it's not as terrible as if you, you know, go ahead and post it on some right. website or something like that and just freely distribute goods on, on the internet. Right, right. I mean, to some extent, I just want to say, though, I mean, to some extent, I mean, you know, it's not to say that the corporation's always right either for mm-hmm. locking things up. There's also sort of a civil disobedience side to it, mm-hmm. where, you know, if you, if you strongly believe in your own particular manifesto that you think corporations are being stupid or something like that, then it's not necessarily legal, but I also think that it's also within your, your span of personal rights and ethics to disagree. We are running a little out of time, though. I'm, I'm curious if uh, you have any advice for people who are interested in getting involved in hacking uh, their electronic applications. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're interested in getting into hacking electronics, I think the best piece of advice I have is to keep on trying and don't get discouraged. A lot of people who are starting out, I feel, are a little daunted because there's some mystique that surrounds hardware, like so, so somehow it's locked away and hard today or something. And mm-hmm. A lot of focus came off of it during like the dot-com boom and stuff, and when people all started doing web pages in Java, and it's, wait a minute, whatever happened to hardware as, as a hot topic. Right. It's a discovery of those techniques, and it's actually not too bad to, to get into it. It's a lot of fun, too. I see. Are, are there many resources out there for those individuals interested? Yeah, there's a lot of actually a lot of websites that sell components at discount prices and tools at discount prices for hobbyists. My book actually has a lot of pointers to these minimum parts you should buy as a, as a beginning hobbyist. Tells you how to solder. Tells you how to get into board layout and FPGA design and a, a number of other things. So if you're interested in getting into hardware hacking, my book actually was targeted largely at people who are you know, sort of curious about it and want to find out more about it, and learn how to do it. Oh, great. And, and they can get the uh, the book, uh, Hacking the Xbox, in stores, right? Yeah, everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, everything. Okay, great, great. Uh, well, I guess finally, so are, are there any other projects left uh, in the uh, the pipeline for you as far as this <laughs> sort of thing? Or, 
Well, as for the Xbox, I'm, I'm kind of taking a hiatus because it's sort of like a, the turkey with its head up right now and the, <laughs> the hunter with a shotgun looking for it, right? Right. But uh, I'm actually plenty busy working on other projects of a sort of similar nature. May, maybe you'll hear about them, maybe you won't. <laughs> Sometimes I keep them a little quiet. So. All right. <laughs> well, we'll keep a lookout for them, or, or maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Huang, I, th- I just want to thank you very much for a very fascinating discussion and joining no us today on Berkeley Rocks. Yeah, thanks. You were just listening to Dr. Andrew Huang, author of Hacking the Xbox, an introduction to reverse engineering. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out why cats always land on their feet. So stay tuned. Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered why cats always land on their feet? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Did you ever wonder why cats always seem to land on their feet? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. If there's ever been an animal that can land on its feet, it's a cat, even in the most precarious situations. To see how, let's become a cat. Perched high on a tree, 
Now, this tree provides a good vantage point for bird watching, but this particular bough is a little too light to support our weight. It's about a 15-foot drop to the ground, and we're facing up, which could mean serious trouble if it weren't for our inner ear. As a cat, our inner ear is filled with fluid and extra-sensitive receptor cells. At our head movement, those receptor cells send a message to our brain that not only are we falling, we're falling the wrong way. Our brain immediately responds by telling us to turn our head around. Once our head's facing the ground, we're able to bring the top half of our body around and then complete the turn with the rest of our body. Now that we're facing the right way, we stretch out our front legs, arch our back, and brace our hind legs for impact. Then we just relax and enjoy a very happy landing. So now you know why science is so easy to fall for. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's National Education Program, making science make sense. Well, you know, I could always fall for the Everyday Science lady. She's really easy to fall for. That's if you have the right fluids in your inner ear, right? There have to be right fluids somewhere <laughs> going in the right direction. In the inner direction. Oh, Everyday Science lady. Hope you land on your feet. Okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is a calorie? And this is for all those dieters out there. A calorie is the energy it takes to raise a cubic centimeter of water by a one degree centigrade, and that is a calorie. Yeah, so it's very great, uh, the Tokyo Kid. Uh, the calorie is very great. And you know what has a lot of calories? The soda pop. Just one calorie, Diet Coke, I think. Yeah, so, so it's very great with Diet Coke. It's amazing. But uh, the thing is, I wonder, is, uh, it has a lot of calories, but why is it so fizzy? That's a big question. Well, if you know the answer or just think you're not, uh, email us at glocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but hey, you just might feel some fizz. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.